from the new recording lair located deep beneath the Wine and Spirit Store in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. You're listening to the Masonic Light Podcast. Studio 665 presents Masonic Light Podcast. This show is recorded by Masons, for Masons, and is for entertainment purposes only. And please, no wagering. This podcast is not endorsed by any Grand Lodge, and the ridiculous ramblings of the hosts are their own. And now, here's your host. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Masonic Light Podcast, episode 139. What? 139? 139. Uh, tonight's going to be a good show. Um, our guest is uh, Brother uh, Nathan Minnick. Um, Nate's got an impressive resume with all kinds of things, but we're here to talk about his real job. <laughs> his paying job. His paying job. It, it, what is the current term nowadays, the proper term? Funeral director. Oh, Funeral director. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> not, 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 under, not undertaker, not mortician. You hear them all. <laughs> or as my, my grandma would say, peckamort. Um, so uh, we're we're down a couple hosts this week. Uh, Jack has a speaking engagement, and uh, Larry Larry uh, was dumb enough to buy into buy a house in a homeowners association, <laughs> and he's trying to vote somebody out of the HOA tonight. <laughs> this isn't even like local politics; it's just neighborhood <laughs> <is> neighborhood stuff. <laughs> yeah. So filling in as a special guest host tonight is our Masonic Lake podcast electrician brother scott helm hello so uh scott welcome um you've been here before nate you have not what we do is we go around and we talk about what we've been up to for the past week or two i left my phone at a bar so i have no idea what i've been up to because <laughs> uh i don't see my calendar so we'll start with josh what have you been up to uh i went to the stated meeting of millersville lodge number 476 <laughs> And that's it. Tim, you've got the uh, your big, as you throw things on the table? Throwing or? things on the table here. What, what have you been up to? Well, I'll just mention a couple of things. Uh, one of the events I attended uh, last week was uh, a meeting of Cumberland Valley Lodge number 315 in Shippensburg, where I got to watch uh, past Grandmaster S. Eugene Herrett get his 50-year pin. Uh, that was pretty cool. Um, there was actually a guy that was getting a 70-year pin also, which was even cooler because he stood up. And he got to steal some thunder from the past <laughs> grandmaster. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, it was great because the guy had a lot of family and stuff there, and he stood up and talked about, well, in my day, we weren't allowed to invite anybody into the fraternity. And so <laughs> all the purple that was there, it was great. Uh, but that was a lot of fun. And then uh, most recently, on this past Saturday, uh, the Valley of Harrisburg had a series of events. Um, the graduation for the Children's Dyslexia Center, um, which is just a fantastic thing. If you're in, near one of those centers, uh, you should learn a little bit more about what goes on at those centers. They're really cool. And the, and the graduation ceremony was great. That was followed by a, a seafood feast in the afternoon uh, where we had a, probably a couple hundred folks there. And it was followed by a derby party where we projected the Kentucky Derby up on the big screens. And they kept trying to mess up the good bourbon with 
lime and or uh, mint and all the other stuff and I've tried to show them how to well that's really that's how you make a make bourbon taste okay for people who don't like hard liquor yeah I guess so so not everybody's as refined as you Tim. <laughs> so we'll we'll limit my uh, recent a lot lot of uh, reunion rehearsals and so on but uh, that's kind of it Nate, what have you been up to? You're you're wearing a lot of hats and a lot of different colors. Well, the beginning of the month is not as intense as the month goes on, but I missed the party and the dyslexia center, which I had two funerals that day, but we're here to talk about my regular <laughs> job, right. so sometimes it gets in the way. That's right. But the uh, mm, dyslexia center there at Harrisburg, close to my heart, if you go down the steps to their center, you see the big Minnick funeral logo there. Mm-hmm. Probably freaked some kids out, but I chose <laughs> that. Parents, be, maybe. <laughs> my, that chose that as one of our uh, charitable f- uh, things for the funeral home. We can talk about it later if it interests you. But every funeral home that has a crematory, of course, has lots of metal left over after the process. So that metal gets collected and recycled. And rather than anybody, oh, didn't you know that? Ooh, I, that, I'm, got, I'm getting all kinds. No, of I'm learning. I'm learning already. <laughs> so it's nice to tell people that. Uh, any of that metal gets recycled, and I donate all that money to the Children's Dyslexia Center. Like from fillings and hip yeah, replacements, hip replacements and whatever. Any kind of metal that's oh, What's a titanium hip go for? Because they, they paid 200 grand for it. What's it worth of scrap? Not, not near as much. So it's a nice way to give back. But I would have loved to be there, but work comes yeah, first. Understand. Other than that was our stated meeting this uh, last meeting. Uh, Ashler, number 570. There you go. I'm the treasurer. I finally gave up the secretary's desk a year ago. Attaboy. But uh, we would have had our extra meeting yesterday, but we had to postpone. Did so. you have to fake your own death to get the uh, out of the secretary chair? No. Oh, no, no, no. But Todd's doing a wonderful job, and I'm glad he took the chair. But we would have had an extra meeting yesterday. Got postponed, though, till next week. So right. I'm putting off doing another third until another week. So, Mr. Scott Helm, uh, Prince of Jerusalem. Sovereign Prince, I guess, is your title. You should curtsy when you say that. <laughs> well, what's going on with you masonically? <clears throat> Uh, I've been trying to stay low. Uh, Grotto, got a few more years left on my term there. You're number two in Grotto. I am. Uh, number one in... In your heart and mine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Sovereign Prince. Uh, June 1st, I am done. I am a past Sovereign Prince. Wow. Now you're going in the consistory line? Uh, no. <laughs> but that is that is the Valley of Reading. Very cool. What have I been up to? Lots of practices for the Valley of Reading. Um, 18, 23, 32, and I think something else. I'm Larry sure. working stage crew again. I have not seen Larry. <clears throat> Larry's been using his health as an excuse. Okay. Um, I don't believe it. Cause he well, he usually not- sits and drinks coffee most of the time, right? Well, I think what happened is now that Scott has been adv- getting in these more important roles, he's not spending time backstage on stage crew. I retired. Yeah. When, when, when Scott was on stage crew, he used to sit with Scott and just would, would just gossip. Yes. <laughs> uh, it was, it'd be funny. We'd have everything out set up on stage. The actors are ready to come on. And by that time, Larry has made it around the corner. He was going to be uh, like QA. He was going to be quality control. Come out with his folder. And he'd stand there, and I'm like, Larry, we're, we're set up. The, the, the actors are come on. you got to get off stage. He's like, I just got here. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Timing is impeccable. <laughs> so as, as the show electrician, I do have one question from Larry. Um, how many of these space heaters can we plug into one outlet at one time? 
I'm going to answer that as my former career when I was a has-been fireman, and the answer is zero. But <laughs> um, one per outlet is perfectly fine, if I remember correctly. Unlike uh, your last guest from last week who, I guess, uh, ridiculed my electrical work, um, <laughs> he had some purple initials in front of his name. And, you know, I'm not going to say his name out loud, but it reminds with Ramos Schnamen. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what he was looking at because most of his career, as old as he was, he was around this stuff called knob and tubing. Mm. So I'm not sure when you start seeing his modern <laughs> the, stuff. The gauntlet's do, being laid. If he knew what he was talking about. So, yeah. So I've been doing practice, and I did go to uh, Millersville Lodge 476, stated meeting and extra meeting. I was happy that um, I didn't get – neither Josh nor myself got pulled into a chair for the stated meeting. So, you know, they're, 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 they're starting to get their feet – and get the chairs filled. And uh, when the extra meeting, I did help out as guide, um, but there was like three or four guys on the sideline. And I'd say one of the highlights was um, there was a gentleman there that got his first, he, got, he became a mason like 10 years ago and never came back. And he came out for the rusty nail degree, and he came out to the extra meeting. Nice. So... Yeah, there's a success story for uh, for Master Larry. Like, one guy is a success. If you can get one person off the sidelines just to be an active member again, that that's a big win. So. May, may I jump back again? I'm sorry, I forgot yeah. something. Well, just say no. Only if it's good. <laughs> I got to see something really, really cool. Um, it was up in the lodge next to the Valley Reading. I can't remember what the name of it is. Reading Lodge. Uh, hospital parking lot lodge. Yes, hospital parking lot lodge. Three third degrees, full third degrees in a row, done Ooh. by Victor, Victor Frederick the Fourth, Victor Frederick the Fifth, and Victor Frederick the Sixth. All that one night. It was a very, very long night. I bet. But it was it was cool to see that. So that is really cool. Yeah, that's neat. So sorry to interrupt. Oh, good. Lots. Of, if you've never been to the <coughs> Valley of Reading, okay. Just think, it's in West Reading. I was going to say, it's really the Valley of West Reading. Because Reading, <laughs> Reading, Pennsylvania is kind of scary. I've, I've made that mistake a couple of times. <laughs> but West Reading, when you leave the when you leave the valley, you are just surrounded by mansions, mm. and it is Brownstones. just unbelievable. These big houses there. They were but, all the the big hoity toity doctors' homes back in when the first hospital. They were all the brownstones. But if you actually if you go into regular Reading, um, hopefully. You come out alive. Well, yeah. Certain blocks. <clears throat> you can get some good food from other nationalities because I, you know. The peanut but, bar. Peanut bar has very good food. They have peanuts. Mm. The first time I drove there, I didn't know it was West Reading, and I put the address in, and I'm like, there's no way there's a consistory around here. And used to be. Well, apparently there used to be. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, I was like five or ten minutes from when I was supposed to be at the other place and I called somebody and they're like, uh, yeah, you're on the wrong side of town. I'll give you the real easy way of writing. If it's a street, it's in the city. If it's an avenue, it's in West Reading. Well, see, now that's helpful. But yep. <laughs> All right. For all you guys overseas, this is a really helpful segment. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you all enjoyed that, I'm sure. All right. We'll take a quick break and we're going to come back with our guest, uh, Brother Nathan Minnick. We'll be right back. Why choose George J. Grove & Sons for your next home improvement project? 
At George J. Grove & Sons, we've built our reputation on quality and trust for more than 50 years. For planning to materials to installation, George J. Grove promises a home improvement experience second to none. Whether your goal is reducing energy costs, decreasing maintenance, updating curb appeal, or simply increasing the value of your home, the George J. Grove team will recommend and provide solutions that stand the test of time. Call 717-393-0859 for an estimate or visit us at georgejgrove.com. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, one thing before I turn the mic over to Tim, I wanted to give a quick shout out to, let me put my glasses on, brother Timothy Curran out of Quakertown. He had sent me back in March um, a, a package of pins, uh, lapel pins that we're going to put up on the wall. And I'd like to thank him for that. Any guys uh, have any extra lapel pins laying around? Send them to us, and we'll push them into our and ruin our drywall. But we're trying to make one of our walls really cool looking. We'll have to take a picture and post it on our Facebook page. At some yeah, point. he also sent some bookmarks, <clears throat> assuming that we read. Yeah. Um, and Tim made a good point. <laughs> the back of the so I guess uh, Tim Tim Curran was a worshipful master of Taconi Lodge number six hundred in twenty seventeen. So thank you, uh, brother uh, Curran. But on the back, you have. The stairway that we don't use in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so I appreciate you trying to educate Pennsylvania Masons with things that we don't know. Yeah, the staircase lecture. Pennsylvania Masons, you should go to Maryland or Delaware and watch that sometime. So, Timmy, so who supports <clears throat> our show? Our Patreons. No, our patrons. I always get that wrong. Through Patreon. Our patrons through Patreon. We greatly appreciate <clears throat> you keeping this fine content going. And for as little as $1 a month... One dollar. There you go. And we got a new thirteen dollar patron this month, and yeah, it's on my phone, so I can't use your name. So. I, I know his name. Oh, Brian Hoover. Look at you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank yes. you, Brian. So, um, www.patreon.com/slash/masoniclightpodcast. Yep. And Timmy, tell us about your guest. My guest, our guest. Well, he's from your side of the river. Well, we were just having the conversation about the content and. I had the contact, so uh, we're glad to have Brother uh, Nathan Minnick with us uh, tonight, who, as Pete indicated earlier, is a funeral director. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you got into that. Five generations. Okay. Well, actually, I knew that because Larry told me he knows your father. Oh. When he said, is this the guy from Elizabethville? And I said, as a matter of fact, it is. <laughs> and he goes, I think I know his dad. Or knew his, is your dad still living? Yeah. Okay. But He's dad's saying. not a funeral director. He oh, was on dad. my mother's side. Oh. oh. Yeah. Well, he knew your dad from Elizabethville. Oh. I'm not sure how. But. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up in a fun home. Yeah. Yeah. There's Tell a, us about there's how a, you There's a play called Fun Home that's about funeral homes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I, well, I was around it since I was a child, of oh. course, but started really doing a little more, you know, 12, 13, washing cars. Doing the usually young people stuff around the funeral home. We also had a monument company, so I usually was at the computer designing tombstones and 
working in that area a little bit. So before did they I have somebody, the funeral director, say, okay, now we've taken care of the ceremony. Go into our next office and talk to the guy about your headstone. <laughs> well, that was Pap's side business. So oh, okay. he, he started that, and it went for a while. Uh-huh. He sold it when I went to college. So Now, did you, did you go specifically go to a mortuary college, or is there a, you a regular undergraduate degree and then went to mortuary school? I left Pennsylvania for my undergrad. So Pennsylvania has two mortuary schools. One's in Pittsburgh, and the other one is at Northampton. And uh, in Pennsylvania, you're supposed to have two years of liberal arts education and then mortuary school. And then you can sit for the state board exam and do a year's internship. But I wanted to get a bachelor's degree, and none of the schools in PA offered it. So I went to Boston, uh, just outside of Boston, and Newton was Mount Ida College. They had a funeral program that was started by the Dodge Company, one of the embalming chemical companies, um, New England Institute. And they had a bachelor's degree there set up either in business or in bereavement studies. So I did the bereavement studies degree and uh, did the whole thing up there before I came home. Then I came home for four years before I decided to go back. And was it kind of like a barber school? Like where you – like if you go to the barber school, you get a discount. So like if you go – and have the mortuary school do your funeral? Do they? Do the people get a kind of price break? No, they didn't. And here's the funny thing. When I was in mortuary school – we had no bodies on the campus at all. Really? The whole the whole time we were in the mortuary school, we did not have bodies that came into the mortuary. We had a beautiful morgue, two tables, you know, the whole the whole nine yards. But they were uh, making us be responsible for our own embalming work at our own funeral homes, or there was some around that would take students. So the whole time I was there, I never touched a body. Really? Some of them that graduated with me didn't either, unless they were paired up with a funeral home to do their practical work. It seems like that might be yeah, important because that, that line of work doesn't seem like it's for everybody. No, no. So, like, you don't want to be like after spending four years doing that, then see a so body and get body grossed out. Ah! <laughs> well, so after that point, I am uh, thirty-five or thirty-six. Graduated with me. There's four of us that are still in the business, and all four of us had family connections. Hmm. Not you a know, good retention rate. No, sounds um, like a dying business. Yeah. <laughs> 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 these are, it had to come. I mean, you know, these are going to yes, be just numbers. That was one. These are going to be numerous tonight. <laughs> but I went home, spent some time, got my license, and then decided to go back to school. I wanted to finish further education. I went back to Boston University to do my master's in theology. And while I was doing that, I went back to the mortuary school to teach where I went um, and changed all that. I was a professor in embalming for the time that I was there. And we made some deals with um, some local funeral homes to get more activity, and they donated some things like a vehicle for us to use for removals. And then we started embalming the bodies that came out of the medical examiner's office that had no one to claim them or people that would claim them but had no money to do anything. And so the students there then got to see some of the worst of the worst. But it gave them more experience. We embalm there all the time. What's the name of those bodies? Uh, I know New York had an island for it. Like that's where they buried the – Upper Hill, or a lot of places have that, depending on the jurisdiction. Is it Pauper Hill or something? Yeah, I mean, yeah, different different towns. Like, I mean, I know in Chester County, where I grew up, there's a section of like one of the big cemeteries is really just for the the people that don't have families or don't have a name. Most of the time now, the county coroners are involved in that, and they'll cremate the bodies and then bury a bunch of ashes at one time. Um, but we were taking care of the ones that had been in the morgue there at Boston for a very long time. 
And then we were able to have funerals. We had companies then that donated a showroom and caskets, and it gave the, the students there a full experience. But it was quite the operation. We had a camera in the ceiling that could watch me do things really close up, and then you could sit up in the auditorium and watch on the big screen. So they got some experience that I never had when I was at mortuary school. But Wow. So, I mean, I guess you have to learn everything. So I'm I'm uh, I'm on the second book. I don't know if you're familiar with. Uh, um, I can't believe I'm re- not remembering the author's name. And I, I tried to get him on the show, and I'm forgetting his name. But the um, uh, it's about the lead character in the books is a mortician from the from from uh, Dover Air Force Base, mm. and he takes care of all the fallen soldiers, and just you know, kind of just in, in the in the background, you, you kind of talk about like the the, the reconstruction process of people want to open casket and things like that and it really shown a light like there's a whole art component to this and and the makeup and the and the hair so is that all kind of stuff you learn at mortuary school or is that just for more practice with <clears throat> at, at the funeral home where you're working no they get it it's part of the curriculum there's a whole class restorative art that's based on color theory and reconstruction you know they've already had two semesters of anatomy and physiology, so they learn all the bones and the muscles and all that. But uh, it is an art. I mean, every student would get a head and then big cans of wax, and part of that process is rebuilding as much as they can on a wax head and then doing cosmetics and hair and all that to learn how to make those pieces as part of their final project in that class. My grandfather was a barber. I remember him telling me stories of going to the local down and helping with the haircuts and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like I I don't like hair, so <laughs> that's that's the line. <laughs> <laughs> that's your line. Okay, Although yeah, yeah. on my dad's side, dad's dad's a barber. My grandmother's a beautician. So my I mean, wait a, a minute. Beautician. So you said earlier you went to theology school, so you could do the service. <laughs> <laughs> you could get them in the casket. You could do the headstone. Your dad would do. Your dad's side would do the haircuts and uh, no hair. No hair. No hair. Okay. <laughs> I don't like, but his practice is exclusively bald men. <laughs> <laughs> but we get a lot of hairdressers that'll still come in and do the hair, you know, that, yeah. the, the stuff that's a little beyond just a comb. But makeup and everything else we do on our own. But it is an art. There's, you go to funerals all the time, I'm sure, and you see some that are like <laughs> a little off, you know, and others that really, you know, look look like they should look. So, so I'm curious. Um, I mean, really, kind of behind the scenes kind of thing. So you get a call that you've got a deceased person uh and and i'm guessing most people just like die it's not like traumatic event necessarily or anything like that or or how how does that break down i mean do you get uh, do you get a a mix of all of that all the time or is it we get a a little bit of a mix Um, all my funeral homes are north of harrisburg Mm -hmm. so every once in a while you know, closer you get to the city, they have more tragic stuff. I mean, we have our fair share of accidents and suicides and drug overdoses, but a good majority are older folks that hospice in the hospital, you know, at home. Um, but certainly when we were at the city in, in Boston, it was all tragic stuff that came out of there. Do you have to have like an uncomfortable, I mean, I, I'd imagine almost when you're talking to bereave, the bereaved, is that the yeah, proper term? All the conversations are, are tough, but do you get many folks that want to have an open casket and you're trying to tell them that, that that's not a good idea? 
I I very rarely try to tell anyone it's not a good idea. Um, and if it requires a lot or of setting the expectations, work, yeah, talk them through it. Let me do some work a day or two. Um, a photograph goes a long way if someone's insisting on seeing someone before they get to that point. If it's something that even you know you ju you just can't get to where you need it to be, but a lot of folks they'll take your advice. You know they're just looking for someone to guide them. You know, and you use language like if this was my son or daughter or mother or father. Um, you give them the best advice you can. I mean, I don't like to walk people in a room and make them see something that would haunt them. And certainly with some tragic stuff, it, um, it can be really bad. Um, we had a – when I was on the fire service, we had an agricultural accident. And it, it was an open – I mean, you guys did amazing work. Like, I, I know the before and after product. And it was – it was like Hollywood. Like <laughs> – yeah, and and some are easier than others, and some guys have the patience and the art to do it. I mean, I've I've been known to work on the same body for twelve, eighteen hours if I have to, you know, using tiny thin thread like dental floss to try to stitch behind the eyebrow and little things to try to do everything you can to bring back as as much. But we've had open casket viewings with people that you wouldn't have recognized them in the beginning. But there are other funeral homes out there that don't have the skills or the people that will put that time and effort into it to, to make so that a reality. How many years have you been doing this? I was licensed in 2001. And was there ever a time in your career where you're just like, I had enough, I want to find something else to do? Or? I don't think so. Well, when I left and went back to seminary, that was not necessarily a change, but something I wanted to do. Um, but as soon as I got there, I got back into the mortuary school and was teaching while I was doing my master's degree. So I didn't even let go of it while I went back. Um, and and I'm, I'm not sure if that was a rude question to ask, but I mean, Pete had it with his police and, and dispatching myself with a firefighting paramedic. You just get to a point where when you're dealing with people at their worst daily, you know, day after day, it takes a toll on you. It does. There's a lot of burnout. Mm -hmm. And it, there's, there's a big give and take. And for the last 14 years, I've also had a congregation. I'm an ordained Lutheran pastor, and, and the two have really taken its toll. I'm recently retired, so I'm pastor emeritus. But um, it got to the point where I had to say something has to give. And with all the funeral homes you know, falling under my ownership, I couldn't really let go of that to stay in one. Um, and it, you got to have a right way of dealing with it, I'd say. And for a long time, the church was a great way to deal with it. It was a creative outlet. It was a different experience altogether from being in the funeral home. And um, I'd say the thing that really pushed me to that was running the business now as the owner, not just dealing with the families, but having to find time to do all that corporate stuff that I hate doing and sitting at the computer and QuickBooks and all the other crazy things you got to do um, just drives you nuts, yes. especially when you're yes. emotionally tasked from the rest of the stuff you do. So you hear, you hear like on the commercials and everybody talking about pre-planning. Mm. Um, and honestly, it, you know, it, sounds critical that people should do that um what are your thoughts and 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 you know because we're all going to need to be disposed of at some point our local municipalities frown <laughs> on tuesday morning with the <coughs> waste management so <laughs> so yeah so the pre-planning process for anybody that's interested in having a discussion with yourself or another funeral director how does that go I think pre-planning is great, but you got to be careful who you're pre-planning with. There are a couple of big corporations out there that those guys work for commission. It's push, 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 push. Insurance policies, the quickest 
process you can do to get a policy, get a file, and uh, my approach is, is different. I think it's well worth it, and especially for people who are interested in the financial benefit. Most funeral homes, not some of the bigger conglomerates, but most individual funeral homes will guarantee their prices if you pre-plan with them because we can do it through insurance. Uh, there's a couple of big ones that the funeral homes use that will help us hedge that inflation along the way. Uh, does a lot better for people than burial CDs at the bank. Um, but beyond the money part of it, people don't have to sit there and say, I wonder what he wanted or I wonder what she would have wanted us to do. It's that more complete file that they talk through. And you get to talk about viewings and the value of seeing the body and the value of still going to the church for a service or you know, having a graveside rather than something. And um, if all that's written down, the next generation usually follows it. And, and right now I'm starting to see a generation of people that are in their 60s, 70s, maybe even upper 50s who want to get away from all that traditional, even if mom and dad had it written down, ah, let's have a picnic or let's call it a celebration of life. And, and I think they're missing all of the things that need to happen for a funeral. Go have the celebration later. Um, but if there's nothing written down, that the prevailing attitude of the day is going to rule. And a lot of them will just change their mind of what they think the, the generation above them would have wanted. So having a complete prearrangement really sets in stone, at least for your next of kin, what you would have chosen if you were sitting there making those decisions in the moment. You, me you mentioned the pre-planning aspect. Uh, do you have opinions on the prepayment that you also hear a lot about? And you kind of mentioned some of the yeah. shady characters that are out there, and I know yeah. they take advantage in many cases. There's a lot that go out there that just look to sell insurance policies. Mm -hmm. But uh, funeral homes, we use insurance policies that are irrevocable. So they can't be considered an asset if someone has to be in uh, the bigger discussion of Medicaid and nursing home for a long period of time. Uh, there's other avenues like bank CDs and whatnot. But letting the funeral home management lets us say we'll guarantee our prices of today. And then it's up to us to make sure they're being put somewhere because at least in Pennsylvania, we can't take any of that money until we perform service. So anything that we do in a prepaid funeral goes right into some investment, whether it's insurance or a bank CD or something like that, that the client controls. It's just linked to the things that we've guaranteed for the future. Um, I, I think it's great to prepay. They know it's there. you know. And, and let's face it, we're living longer. A lot of folks, by the time they get to their late 80s, a lot of things can suck up that money faster than you blink of an eye. You know, a couple stays in a hospital, a couple months in a nursing home, and there's nothing left for them to use. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole – are the way we do funerals and so on in the United States, is it different than other countries? I mean, obviously, you know, we're not Darth Vader where you put them on a fire and uh, – you know, burn them or whatever, but there are cultures that obviously cultures that have different traditions and so on. But I'm talking about just generally around the world. Are the are the customs that we follow kind of similar? I, I think we're still hanging in the traditional uh, realm. If you go around the world, I mean, certainly the religious things dictate a lot of those um, differences. Um, here in the United States, the big conversation every year is how much is the cremation rate rising. Mm -hmm. Um, in our little neck of the northern Dauphin County range, I'm still under 50%, which I'm holding the line on, I hope. Um, but other places in the world, it's rising and rising fast. And it's because people follow that information they think is out there. Oh, we got to cremate because we're running out of burial space. Well, 
maybe in some places they are, you know, inner cities, you know, certainly like in England, they cremate a lot. There's, there's not a lot of land to go around anymore, but it's not an issue here. You've driven around Pen- central Pennsylvania yeah. recently. <laughs> and, I, and you say, you say the, the customs, because yeah. like in America, I'm channeling random YouTube videos that I yeah. watched up until like, you know, um, but there was a long time where houses had a parlor. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, some some salesman in your industry decided, you know, we don't need a room for the dead anymore. We need a room for the living. And that's when the living room came about. And that's when we started having funeral homes. Let's take care of all this dirty business somewhere else. So in the day, part of the grieving process was actually showing up at the person's house, seeing the unembalmed body in some sort of decomposition so you really knew they were dead and i don't know and then we kind of somewhere probably in the 1950s we changed that and sanitized it um so maybe I, this is more of a pastor question the grieving process how like important is that for a person and how like do you manage that it's absolutely vital to address it and work through it step by step because I see the people who avoid it are the ones that make poor decisions and regret it later. Um, For a couple of years, I ran some grief support groups uh, with a parish nurse, uh, and oftentimes the people who had the most difficulty in those groups were the ones that chose not to or weren't weren't given the opportunity to view the body. Um, But even back then, bodies were embalmed. About Civil War, era embalming became pretty standard practice here in the u.s but they're still doing it in homes um i'm not in lancaster with my funeral homes but all the amish are starting to move north of harrisburg and buying up lots of land and so my funeral homes take care of the amish on that part of the uh, central pa and they're still doing viewings in the house uh, we go get the body we, we embalm we put it in a casket that they make and take it back to the house and they have two days of people filing through um and, and it's a different experience. It's an entire community in one spot doing what they need to do for the grieving process. But the funeral home did take that place. It doesn't look as much like a church. It looks like a, fu- you know, a house. So it gives you a little bit more of a, a home feel, especially when evening viewings were the thing. It, it did look like coming into somebody's parlor and just gathering with people. Um, but so many funeral homes now started building chapels, and they look more like a religious institution, and I'm guilty of it. My newest building, Funeral Home Williamstown, has a long building. I put pews in it, you know, because um, you need more space for people. But it does have a different feel when the body's in a casket and it's in a nice room with cushy furniture and people can sit and talk. But Yeah, I know um, the, the lady that cuts my hair is in Burdenhand, Pennsylvania, and directly across the street is a little tiny um, uh, friend's meeting house. And their whole front yard is a graveyard. And they have, in the past five years, started doing the, I don't know what, you, what the proper term is, but they're basically only burying people unembalmed in a shroud, mm-hmm. like not very deep. And I guess those bodies decompose quickly. Is that is that part of the reason that they can do that? That's a growing trend right now. And there's there's two major groups. One of them is the Green Burial Council. Because I, I just know like it's it's all the Amish guys from the firehouse that seem to be the ones that are doing the manual labor. Hmm. 
Um, Amish, for whatever reason, just seem more comfortable with death than the average civilian. So they, they're just... I don't know. It's just like another thing for them. They're, you know, they're in this world, but not of this world is their mm. little saying. But yeah, and I'm like, that's all. I'm getting my hair cut. I'm like, that's all the de- deeper they're going to dig? And like, <laughs> yep. And it's literally only about a foot of dirt on top of them. And I'm like, okay, I hope no dog gets in that yard. Well, <laughs> so I own a cemetery and we do have green burial allowed, but we dig a little deeper than that. <laughs> <laughs> but a shroud, usually like bamboo fiber because it'll, it'll degrade faster or caskets that are made of wicker or bamboo can be used. Uh, there's embalming methods with plant-based chemicals instead of formaldehyde. No concrete or metal vaults. I mean, it, it's a thing. Um, it hasn't really taken off yet, but it, it's gaining a little traction. Um, a lot from the folks who are very eco-friendly but have quickly realized that cremation isn't that great for the environment when you figure you're burning a million and a half BTUs of propane for two hours for every one. You know, you're putting a lot of a lot of heat out the stack. And and the green burial thing, I have quite a few that are prearranged for green burial that they want that kind of experience. Um the, the, we can embalm with these chemicals, so you can still have a viewing, you know, albeit a little shorter maybe. Um, and then they go to these cemeteries and wrapped in a shroud or in one of these caskets, no vaults, um, natural stones instead of things in, in place. And so I'm, I'm curious. I'm hoping it gets a little bit more popular. Where did we get to the point? I mean, I think I know, but I want to ask anyway. Like the vaults. Mm. Um, I mean – the purpose of the vault. Wells? Drinking water? Well, okay, yeah. Obviously, <laughs> you don't want, like, decomposed bodies running into your, if your house water is da- If your house is downhill right. from the funeral, <laughs> from the cemetery. Uh, I'm just curious. Well, the vault companies have their own warranties. We don't make any as a funeral director, but they do keep your ground from not not turning into an up-and-down valley in the cemetery. Okay. Because even, even a strong casket can't really bear the weight of a backhoe sitting on it when it's digging the grave next to it. So the primary function is really to keep that ground from crushing down on the casket. If you bury a wooden casket, it's going to go in a little faster than a metal. Um, so, you know, they say vaults, but a lot of the common ones are just grave liners. It's just a concrete box. It's not lined. You know, moisture is going to get in and out of it, but it's going to stop from having all those ups and downs in a cemetery that you'll see if you go to the real old sections when they you know, they were wooden rough boxes. Mm-hmm. But you're right. There's vaults out there that are plastic lined, sealed, covered in copper, covered in bronze. I have some really cool pictures of uh, graveyards in Key West because mm. they can only dig down 18, 20 inches there because it's all water. Yeah. No, it's all uh, reef. Oh, yeah. So it's super hard. It actually, that's where Key West was known as Bone Island before it became Key West. That's where they, they just threw the dead on that island and... Good luck, Scooter. <laughs> um, but just like you said, I mean, just from a shift and everything, they, they put concrete on top of everybody, mm-hmm. and it's all all over the place. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, you know, most of my career was in sales. So I remember when my, when my dad passed, and I'm going through the process with the funeral director, and I like I identified immediately what what sales courses he had been to. <sighs> <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, they're like, okay, so they walked us in a room and they had, um, they had an inexpensive casket that looked like crap. And then they had a really gaudy, super expensive casket, which was horribly ugly. So it left you with this one in the middle and it seemed, it was like cherry. 
is moderately priced compared to the other two. So like, oh, well, I'll go with the one in the middle. I mean, that's just a standard sales technique. You give three options and you know people are going to pick the middle one. Well, then like, you know, as we're walking to go look at something else, the vaults, I see there's a door open and I look and I see there's like 50 other options that were on the lower end of the lower one that I saw. So, you know, just saying as a salesman, there's more in the book they can show you if you can't afford the $3,000 one they call as the minor, the, the basic one. But then he goes, uh, and now the vaults did the same thing, but he goes, now St. Patrick's St. Patrick Cemetery does not require vaults, but we recommend them. Okay. You know, we're like, whatever. So you, we picked the one in the middle. The one on the right looks like something John Gotti would have. It was all covered in gold and ornate things. And the etchings. Um, and I know on the far left looked like a styrofoam igloo cooler. And we're like, well, I guess we'll go with the one in the middle again. So, you know, so as a salesman, so that you're also running a business. Yes. How do you balance I'm that? Not how do you a balance, salesman. How do you balance those whole. Those I'm not a salesman. Okay. I absolutely detest that. Good. And you're right. That is the mentality of a lot of them out there. And then you got the other mentality that before the Federal Trade Commission decided to get involved, that everything was hidden in the package of that casket. You picked the casket that they could get you to buy and everything was packaged into that. So you really didn't know what you were paying for. Now we have to itemize everything. So it's a little more clear for people to see what they're doing, but there's still that sales mentality. Um, Ten years ago, I'm going to guess, I don't remember exactly when, I got rid of the percentage markup on our merchandise um, before I was the owner even, and it, it would just felt wrong. Now I like going into the showroom and saying, obviously we're a business. The funeral home has a standard dollar amount markup on the merchandise we sell, but we make the same if you buy the cardboard casket or the solid bronze. So I don't we'll pick what fits your budget. And the same thing with the vaults. Now, 90%, I'd say, of our cemeteries that we have up our way require at least the grave liner. So there's the minimum requirement. It's going to do the job unless you're worried about water and stainless steel and copper. But the same thing. I, I don't care if they buy the, the minimum or, or the top. If you build your business on selling trinkets to people that they're going to see for the next three days and then never see again because they're under the ground, I, I think you're on the wrong page of being a funeral director. It's a service. You know, they want us to come out at 2 o'clock in the morning, ready to go. Uh, that's worth what they're paying, not really the stuff you're selling them. So, so time to name drop. You ever have anybody famous in your, for your mortuary? Oh, oh, oh there's I don't think there's a hippo for uh, dead people, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a quick break, and we're going to come back and answer that question. <laughs> As far back as the mid-1800s, records exist describing the pre-meaning tradition of brethren smoking cigars during and after gatherings. To this day, the practice of smoking cigars remains very much alive in many lodges. This custom is considered a time for brethren to relax, exchange ideas, and enjoy the simplicity and fellowship that is the very essence of our brotherhood. This is what Hireman Solomon Cigars is all about. Our starting principles are to bring Masonic brethren together in the harmony of a good cigar. Pull up a chair, sit back, light up any of our premium cigars, and enjoy the history. Hireman Solomon Cigars can be found at fine cigar retailers. For a complete list, visit HiremanSolomonCigars.com 
or check them out on social media to find out when they'll be at a live event near you. Hireman Solomon Cigars is pleased to be the official cigar of the Masonic Light Podcast. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We have a special caller on the line. Hey, who have we got on the caller? Hey, it's me. Hey, Larry. How's it going, man? Hey, good. How's it going with you guys? All right, man. We're talking about dead people tonight. Well, you know, I wish I would have been there because Nathan <laughs> and I probably have a lot to talk about. <laughs> so how did your HOA vote go? Oh, that disaster. Oh, no. So you missed a well, show for a disaster. To the you know, when, when I, I was a PR director for a congressional campaign in South Carolina, my candidate <laughs> lost on that one, too. And, and then I was a, uh, I was a marketing uh, director for a campaign in South Carolina for the governor. He won. He won. And that was good news. But tonight, it just didn't work out. Larry, we just found we just found out that the the all the metal parts in your body are worth money when you're cremated. Yeah, when you when you oh, go, really? yeah, we're, we 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 got to talk to Carol. They kind of smelt you oh. down. <laughs> yeah, I think there's some titanium in some of these things. You're right about that. Yeah, yeah. Nathan Minnick, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Uh, years ago. And this this is going back probably about the time of your your, your relative your dad I believe at the uh, the home in Williamstown correct your grandfather your grandfather okay well then you probably uh, heard of Stuart Dreisjacker in Tower City yep that's who my grandparents bought the funeral I, home I, from I worked for him in the summer uh, I don't want to call him internship I was just a I did everything that you could humanly do that was. Like, like I said, I was the biggest golfer in the world, and I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> and uh, he sent me out in jobs that I do have postpartum de depression now. <laughs> I think that's called PTSD. Larry. <laughs> 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 that's probably, that's probably <laughs> but back in 1960 and 61, I was a cleaner, and I had no idea you could make a living. <laughs> Are you now a mother, Larry? Yeah. You <laughs> and, uh, and let me tell you. To get a $50 bill handed to you in 1961 was big dollar. But I'm not going to tell you on the air what I had to do to get that $50. But it was fun. And I, I was involved. I, I mean, he, he did all the uh, all the, the running of the funeral home and the embalming and so forth. I would help collect. Uh, I would uh, do few, I would do all the odd jobs. Ran the vacuum a lot. That makes any sense. So. Well, listen, we just got a call from the censors, man. They said we got to cut this off. Oh, <laughs> uh, come on. Anyway, Nathan, I hope, I hope to get to meet you sometime. We, I, I certainly have to <laughs> We do, too. Yeah. <laughs> we can arrange that, Larry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially when I had the bejesus scared out of me one day in the embalming room. Oh, goodness. But that's, that's another story. That's another story. All right, anyway, well, take Nathan, care. Nathan, did you come down from Williamstown or Eville? I came from Millersburg. I was in my office. Wrong yeah. Wrong way. Okay. All right. Well, it was good to have you on the show. I'm sure it's going to be a good show. And, uh, guys, sorry I'm not there tonight. I really wanted to be there. But I've got to go because right now it's bourbon time at the losing candidate's house. So I'm going to go get drunk. All right. Bye. All right, guys. Have a good one. Take <laughs> Boy, there was a surprise. Oh, my goodness. Oh, gosh. So we, were, so we, so we have a few more. I guess it's time. Not for the inner. In a, we won't call them inappropriate questions, but 
uncomfortable questions. No? Yeah. Even that, well, yeah. I mean, it's like things you always wanted to ask. Yeah. I can let me clarify what since you said okay. about how his connection. So he worked for Stuart Dreisjacker in Tower City, way up above Harrisburg. My grandparents were running the funeral home that was my grandmother's uh, side of the family, Henry S. Fisher Funeral Home, which is now named Newmeyer, which is on Second Street in Harrisburg. If you've ever driven out that way, they moved up and they bought the funeral home from Stuart Dreisjacker. That's how my grandparents made it up there. And then my mom met my dad when they moved to Tower City. And then they bought the one in Williamstown, which is still there, but it's not a funeral home anymore. The one I have in Williamstown, we remodeled. So Stuart's wow. wife, Edith, is a good friend of the family and my Nana's best friend. So I'll have to ask Edith if she remembers him. Maybe was, she can tell me how many cars he washed that summer. Exactly. <laughs> I almost died several times in Tower City on four-wheelers. So. Oh. <laughs> well. Well, keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nate can use the business. Go down to Williamstown. Go go closer. <laughs> Tower City used to have a big coal mine trail, oh, yeah. so you can go up with your four wheelers and. So let's let's talk a little about cremation. Okay. Um, the science and the process of it. So obviously, you need to burn the people, burn the bodies, until they're ash, or how how how. How much gets left, or what, what gets left after the process of the burning? Most of what's left is just the remnants of the bone. So in Pennsylvania, we're the only state left in the country, must run at 1,800 degrees. And that consumes everything but the bone. And, and it still keeps its shape, but it's very brittle. So it gets swept out and then processed and... Ground down or... Yeah. So what you see in an urn is just tiny pieces of what was swept out of the machine when it was, after it was cooled down. So what is you said Pennsylvania is the last one to require eighteen hundred. What's the other states have gone down to where these uh, manufacturers have said is way more efficient, of between fourteen and sixteen hundred. Um, so more medium rare than uh, well, well done. It's actually it's it burns Longer. faster and, oh, okay. and and better at a, a lower temperature. So we're using more fuels here to use our crematories in Pennsylvania, just to maintain that. Uh, extra couple of hundred degrees. Okay. But the machines all do the same thing. Is there somebody from the state named George Heinsen that comes around and tech checks your temperatures to, uh, to make sure you're in compliance? Boo. I would love if he was the guy who... Boo. Did <laughs> <laughs> you ever I, accidentally I, drop one and then I go to the ashtray and just to <laughs> oops, even it up a little bit? <laughs> so yeah, we need a little more in there. The official well, answer is no. You know, people use that term, ashes. I mean, it, it's really just bone fragments that are so very dried out that they're so brittle they can be ground down very easily. Um, anything that burns in there that you think would be ash, like if they're in a cardboard box, like everybody has to be in a container of some kind to be put in the crematory. So it's usually a cardboard box. That burns up long before the body is, is finished cremating. Same thing with clothing or anything else that's in there with them. And someone that is um, m morbidly obese. Hey. <laughs> is I didn't see that. We we a couple of us resemble that. Remark. What what challenges? I, no, I mean yeah. much bigger than us. Fat's a, what 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 kind of challenges does that add to your job? So my business, we have two two machines right now. One's fairly old; it was 1990s uh, build, and the other one was put in 09. They've now got to the point where they can handle a lot bigger uh, of a person in in special machines. So I have one on order. It's supposed to be here in like two weeks. Got pushed back and pushed back. The newer ones can handle six, seven, up to a thousand pounds, but they're designed for that. The, the smaller machines can't handle it just because it takes a longer time to burn off that much fat. I mean, 
Just I, like I disagree. Did you ever see the uh, grease from a burger drip down the grill and it flames everywhere? Well, that's the problem. It it overheats the machine <laughs> and it can't handle the temperature, and it, it could damage it. So if it tops out at twenty one hundred degrees, you'll have a thermal coupler that'll blow, and then it can't regulate itself. And you know, if a machine malfunctions, they're meant to contain themselves, but you know, they can get out of hand. Um, every couple of Every t- couple of times they change people at the fire company, they come through and look at them and get the spiel of, if you ever think it's out of control, find us first. Because it could puff smoke and somebody calls the fire company and next thing you know they're sending a fire truck. But you can't put them out. And they put one out, a crematory oh. company in like Georgia, by putting the ladder up and shooting water down in it. And it just turned into a steam pot and just blew itself off the off the floor. <clears throat> so they're designed to, to calm themselves down, but they generally are, are fairly efficient. And the new ones are more efficient. The new one that's coming is able to do this with a more air-fuel mixture and, and a little bit uh, quicker than two solid hours of just waiting. But. So talking about cremation, it seems as though that has been a huge on – the, on the rise, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, recently. Um, what do you think – has caused that, or is is that is that a cost thing? Is that a what fewer uh, religious people? <clears throat> yeah. What what's the what do you what do you attribute that to? Twofold. I, I, yes, I think the cost drives everything. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the problem in the funeral industry has been that the funeral homes have ridden along with cremation being the cheap option because they made their money on the regular stuff, mm-hmm. and they've left cremation be the cheap option. As cremation rises, if that cost doesn't soon start to get up to the point where it's just like an immediate burial, you're not going to be able to afford people on call 24-7 to go pick up the body at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so cremation, at least in most of the places that are keeping up with it, it, is getting close to being one of those costs that keeps us going. Um, ours is thirty four ninety five for just the cremation. You'll go online, you'll see the nineteen ninety five or fifteen ninety five, and then you'll find out later they charge you for everything else before you get out the door. But I'd rather be upfront and honest and say it takes a lot of manpower to to get that to its completion. It's not just the cheap option. People still complain; they think it should be a cheap option. But if that happens, the mom and pop funeral homes are going away, and then you got. Uh, funeral homes like ours, where I'm a really a five-location funeral home. Two of them we closed because they were just sole proprietors that, as cremation rises, they just can't afford to stay in business. The other thing is the religious element. When you have nothing telling you what you should do um, with a dead body, you'll do whatever you think is the norm. And I'm surprised by the number of people who come in and say, well, isn't that the thing people are doing right now? I love to pull out the no. Actually, it's less than half. And they're, they're, they're like dumbfounded. But if you dive down the religious thing, then I'll send you a copy of my dissertation. And you can find out why from a religious perspective, I don't think human bodies should be cremated. I'd love to read that. <clears throat> It's boring. It's long. But, it's okay. you know, there's lots of, there's lots of things in the mix. And, and when the clergy aren't saying, here's why the church didn't cremate for most of its existence – um, and even when it did allow it, here's why the church said keep one urn buried in a consecrated cemetery um, because they believe in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't throw it to the wind if you believe it's going to rise one day out of the grave. And but clergy, you know, you'll go to a wedding and they have eight thousand rules about what you can walk down the aisle to and where the br- mother or the bride sits. But they'll go to a funeral and let the people do whatever they want. Uh, so there's no direction, and I think that's what's Pushing the drive. If there's no direction, choose what's cheaper. So, so let's just back up a little bit process-wise. 
um, let's say um, John Doe here passes away in his home and it's not. I'm so glad he didn't say Larry, but. (laughs) I I considered it. Um, John Doe passes away in his home. Natural cause is elderly person. So we're not dealing with law enforcement or anything like that. And um, so the the body typically would leave right from the home and go to your funeral home. If there's if there's a medical professional involved. So if there's no medical professional involved, then, yeah, the coroner comes and usually the police and the ambulance. If the coroner comes and sees nothing out of the ordinary and agrees to sign the certificate, then they'll release it to us. Most of the time, if there's a nurse or a hospice or something, then, yeah, we can go. But only after somebody pronounced, then we get the body. Well, my knowledge of assistant coroners are – they have about as much knowledge as us in the – well, no, <laughs> less than you, Nathan. Um, but, yeah, usually it's a firefighter or a former paramedic or somebody. But, yeah, they're dead, and uh, that's it. Um, so, okay, they we, – We were never allowed to pronounce. No, but, I mean, I the assistant coroners in Chester County were – Friends of the funeral. They were not doc. They, they they were not doctors. Right, and they're not all across the state. There's quite a few funeral directors that still serve as coroners because it's elected position in Pennsylvania. Right. Right. Yeah, but then they all have pathologists that work for them, especially when they got to do autopsies and and make determinations. So, so let me insert a question here. Okay. <clears throat> this kind of this kind of um, again, it's one of those morbid kind of things to. So when a body dies. There can still be involuntary things that happen. Yeah, with muscles and so not on. not near as drastic as you think. Okay. People say. I mean, think about it. If you go to a nursing home and ask an eighty-five-year-old bedridden lady to do a sit-up, mm-hmm. and she can't do it, what makes you think the body's going to do it when there's no coordination okay. of the muscles? I mean, little bits. Uh-huh. I mean, most of it is bodily functions, mm-hmm. um, but. I have never seen one sit up, swing its arm, okay. look at me, move around, you know. <clears throat> but people think that. Well, know. I mean, you know, the stories of sitting up with the dead. I mean, I grew up yeah. in the South, so, I mean, you sat up with the dead and you heard these stories of, yeah. you know, Grandpa raised up. And, <laughs> you know, so, again, I was. As the temperature goes down in their body and rigor sets in, they're going to stay whatever direction they are, at least until that starts to work itself out. <laughs> So, okay, so the the body comes into the funeral home Mm -hmm. and obviously goes into, like, a refrigerated um, slide, whatever you call it. What do you call it? Some have coolers with drawers. My funeral homes have big rooms that we keep them on dressing tables. Okay. So then if it's a – if the – usually you meet with the family within a day or two? Oh, yeah. Yeah, usually as as quickly as we can, especially if they're going to be embalmed, because that will do almost right away rather than keep them in the refrigeration. Okay. And if they're going to be cremated, just keeping in the – how long does keeping someone in the refrigerator – because, you know, like I just think of like meat, like, Mm -hmm. you know, things still spoil if you don't don't use it. We're we're bound by 10 days in Pennsylvania before we have to request permission from the state board – and then you have to have a good reason. Either your refrigerator is sufficient temperature-wise or you got to embalm the body to be able to hold it longer than that. Uh, after the 24-hour period of waiting, we mostly have all the paperwork ready to go. And within a day or two, cremation happens. Okay. Yeah. And then say, so, I mean, do you do many uh, funerals? Um, I don't know what the, the – po- I would imagine what my view of the population is in that area. 
Jewish or Muslim people that they kind of have their own traditions, traditional people yeah. they use. Yeah, and so do the Amish. I mean, on a slightly less uh, stringent type of scale, they really want to get that service rolling. And and from religious groups, even they don't like the system if the coroner gets involved and wants to do an autopsy. And you put a day or two into something that's a religious experience for them, and, and it's not easy. Uh, so certainly with the Jewish uh, customs and the Muslim customs, the system can get in the way of that 24 hours or before sundown type thing for some of the Orthodox, but the coroner rules, and and they eventually relent. But we don't have much of that where I'm at in rural northern Dauphin County, but certainly here in the cities more, there are bigger communities like that. Anything else inappropriate, Tim? I don't know. You. <clears throat> I'm good on inappropriate. Maybe Scott has something. How much is a Viking funeral? I'd like to go on record saying I want one, as long as Larry Maris shoots the arrow. <laughs> you think you could hit it? Yeah. <laughs> if you can get the permit to do that on the river, we'll, we'll put it right out of Millersburg. I'll do that for free. Sweet. Okay. What what um what are some That's of the most unusual now in posterity? Isn't it? <laughs> that actually does raise some questions. What yeah? What are some of the most unusual requests? Most of the time, people ask about where can we put ashes. You know, and people will come up with all kinds of places to sprinkle them here and there. But other than bearing on your own property, I mean, we've done that quite a bit where people will section off a piece of their property and make a family burial plot. Um, I haven't had too many really strange ones. I mean, there are sometimes people want to draw things out for much longer than I mean, it can, needs can to be. I, can my mistress and my pets come with me like it, the Egyptians? <laughs> Again, you get the permits to do what you need to do. <clears throat> I mean, now pets are another thing. We oftentimes have people um, will bring like the, the urn with their cat or dog and want to put that in with them in the casket. Uh, that, that's becoming a, a pretty common practice now that cremation in pets is is certainly uh, a bit more prevalent than it was. I mean, we one of our crematory units is a pet crematory, so the people that don't want to send them to the vet who you don't know where they go to and they want it one by one, a lot of folks are bringing their pets to us because they they can watch the process and. I think Pet Cemetery turned a lot of people off from. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. So the vet, when, when my when my one dog passed um, to get him cremated, is now would you like him cremated by himself or with his friends? <laughs> They're not his friends. She never met them. By so, uh, solo, and I just have to hope that. Oh, and that's the other thing too. I was I doing my volunteer for the Do- Doberman rescue. I picked up a living Doberman at. Uh, an SPCA once, and it was the time of day that the animal crematory was coming to pick up dogs. And uh-huh. it looked like something right out of, uh, there's something about Mary. Mm-hmm. There was a big chest freezer, <laughs> and the deceased dogs were just kind of wrapped in like butcher's paper. And, but they still look like the shape of a dog. <laughs> and they're just handing these frozen animals. <laughs> and I'm sitting there talking like this Thank God this dog doesn't understand what's going on. <laughs> I'm like, we're going to get you out of here, buddy. We're going to get you out of here. <laughs> oh, so, so no, uh, whether it's cremation or regular embalming, et cetera, no real strange requests that come to? Not really. Not really. No. I mean, those stories hit out there and, you know, 
writing land, but when the rubber meets the road, most people are pretty respectful of what they want to do. I mean, you hear it more in people who say, oh, when I die, and mm-hmm. then they give you some ridiculous thing they want like you the to Viking do. Like the Viking funeral. Or yeah. yeah. I mean, that, although that would be interesting to <laughs> watch. Be, I mean, yeah. So what do you think the chain of events was when you hear about these funeral directors? Like the guy, I think it was in Georgia, that wasn't getting rid of the bodies. Like, tragic things like that. What, like, is it just someone that's just trapped in, in bills and is just... I think you can probably trace it all back to money. E- even the ones locally that we've heard of that have had some trouble. I mean, we've seen good funeral directors read those, and you just think to yourself, why in the world would you want that in your garage? Like, mm-hmm. that's got to be an ungodly mess um, to work with, let alone why. You know, call somebody and get some assistance, but... I guess it's like everything else. When people get pinned against the wall, they make some really bad decisions. But um, we have laws that should stop that. You know, uh, it, it really mystifies you how you can get certificates signed and, and nobody f- would follow that paper trail and find these things that happen. But is Pennsylvania a little bit more um, micromanaging by the government and following up and checking on you guys, making sure you're doing things well, above board? That would be a question I think you should call Vital Records and ask them in their electronic death certificate system, <clears throat> which isn't great anyway. But, you know, I don't know who's watching this stuff. Most of the times you got to beg the doctors to sign this thing in time, and then you got to wait for Vital Records to do its thing. But there's still a date stamp on all of this stuff. So it, it's not that hard to figure out uh, what's going on. But, you know, I've had people come to us and second death in the family and then tell a horror story of, oh, when we lived so in such a place – they held mom for 14 days, and they just said they were so busy they couldn't get all the cremations done. And I just – you just cringe because you, you wonder if they're, if the families are hearing that story, how bad really is it that I, – I, I don't know that I've ever been in the position where we couldn't keep up, that it became that bad. And even when COVID started, we were cremating a lot of bodies out of New York City. Um, and the city of New York changed their permitting process so that they could reissue permits to put our crematory on it. Um, and I work with a, a transportation guy who has his mortuary transportation business as a partner, and he was bringing back 13 or 14 bodies at a time. And that's about as hard as we ran the machine ever. Wow. I mean, it was just constant to try to keep up with what they had uh, a need up there, and we didn't get backed up even doing that. So it really makes you wonder, these guys are doing squirrely stuff. Mm-hmm. Something's going on big time. Yeah, I had a friend who was a uh, paramedic for the disaster management team, and she she said they brought in they went into these big warehouses, fixed the roof because the roofs were leaking. Old warehouses that were, and that's where they had all the the bodies until they were shipping down to you. A couple of the funeral homes. Now we were just one. There were a lot of crematories that were helping out there, but a couple of the funeral homes that we were helping were having to embalm the bodies at their own expense because they didn't have coolers big enough. I mean, a, a city funeral home doesn't have twelve by twelve walk in coolers. So they were making these warehouses. Yeah, the coolers. Yeah. yeah, it was it was really bad. She and, said it was. The weirdest thing, you just hundreds and hundreds of coffins, mm-hmm. boxes, however you want to call them. You know, I found out. I found out during. I went to our my high school reunion this year, and a gentleman that was in a similar business to my father, and which was the, um, the mushroom business and a lot of cold storage. Well, he ended up growing his business even bigger, and just became cold storage for anything, and was one of the biggest cold storage places in the East Coast, and. He goes, yeah, not a lot of people know this, but like after 9-11, they were one of the few places that could house that many 
that many bodies and, you know, keeping them at temperature. I mean, the place, I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of square foot. Um, yeah, and that's something from my home. I had never knew that my hometown had any part of the history mm. of 9-11. But, yeah, his pretty much his whole operation switched over to helping that. But obviously there's a lot of oversight there. <laughs> a lot of people with lots of birds on their shoulders and things like that. But, yeah. Where do you see the funeral business going in the future? Kind of, you see it kind of virtual. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it did a little bit. You know, yeah. Zooming funerals, and yeah. I really despised the live stream because mm-hmm. you can walk outside in a cemetery in Northern Dauphin County and have no cell service whatsoever in the live stream. So we did the recording and then posted it afterwards. Um, virtual is here to stick, I guess, a little bit, um, but mostly now because people travel. It's so much easier to to put the camera up and, and record the service and let people participate that way. But um, I really – I think it's going to a point where either we're going to get real traditional or, or we're going to have to really change. The small funeral homes just can't survive. So um, I'm not saying big conglomerates like SCI and others are, are going to be the only thing, but funeral homes that have five, six, ten locations to be able to have the staff to accommodate these small towns. But the small towns can't really support a funeral home alone anymore. And that's really what, what I've seen happening in our area and why we went from two to three to four to five. Um, and if that doesn't happen – uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen. The, the scariest part is students coming out of mortuary school uh, are about as few and far between as ministers coming out of seminary. You know, <laughs> So it's a, a problem that a lot of industries have. It certainly makes guys that are my age nervous for retirement if, if – you know, there's only five or six in in the area, and and they get like sucked up by the big ones. Who's going to buy your business when in right. thirty years? Right. Who's going to go do removals when I need to be in the office more, um, handling the bigger corporation stuff? And and that's already becoming an issue uh, that I sort of beg and I like. Please leave me alone. I got to do payroll, guys. Don't talk. Don't talk. Don't talk. Uh, it's just a struggle. The, the mom and pop thing, I think, is going to go away. Um, and certainly, as cremation gets bigger, I see a Maybe a, a price type of a correction happening nationwide where the very cheap cremation has to go away or, or there won't be 24-hour service. Uh, you just you just can't make ends meet um, if oh, that's your – I remember the name of my author, Brad Meltzer. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Brad Meltzer. And yeah, yeah. So, so, he, so in the first book, he worked for Dover. Then he uh, – for a little while – is this a real term or something that the author made up? A pirate. A pirate. Yeah, he calls it um, basically someone that is like uh, an on-call um, mortician. Mm. So like if, you know, a small funeral home like yours, you get, I don't know, a, a, a bus of hemophiliac nuns runs into a glass shop. <laughs> <laughs> and you need, you, need, you need extra hands on deck. I saw it happen. <laughs> yeah, so you can you can you can basically a hired a hired gun that you can come in to help you. Yeah, they're out there. You know, most of the time you call them trade embalmers, guys that'll go from funeral home to funeral home and do their embalming work. You know, some of the funeral homes that are out there, like I'll do trade embalmings for other guys when they get uh, a little behind. But uh, there's a rise in transportation companies, um, like the one that I is my business partner in the crematory part of it. He's got vehicles on the road all the time. 
uh, has two vehicles that have double decks that can handle four or more at a time because you can't always expend the staff to go pick them up and bring them in. So there's a lot of really nicely well-trained transport companies that are in the unmarked vehicles that are just moving bodies around for funeral homes. Um, Would you bring that guest mortician and do you like advertise it like when – Tattoo artists have like guest tattoo artists come in. Julio <laughs> oh. Iglesias, with guest star, or whoever. Right? If the owner is the star, you don't bring in things that are better, right? You, know? you can't bring in the best makeup guy ever. Hurry up and die. We have this guy showing up this week. <laughs> no, I, I don't see it going there. But you know, you, you joke about it, but there are a few guys that really have risen to nationwide. Um, fame in the embalming world. But some of those guys work for like Dodge Chemical. They've embalmed thousands of bodies. They get called in when a funeral home has a really difficult case. You know, I worked for Dodge when I was doing my mortuary school. And, you know, they got scientists in the lab all the time developing new chemicals. So when you got the guys to go out and do the crazy stuff that funeral homes want them to do, there are guys like that. So, you know, but they do seminars. Um, you know, funeral directors will go and learn new skills and that's a real party, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you'd be surprised. So they're like the Academy Awards for funeral directors <laughs> in the country. I mean, uh... the best reconstruction of yeah. of face. Yes, yeah. I mean, there's some out there. I mean, the, a and couple a dramatic series. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to one of these, though, so, there's some guys out there that are really phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, and there, I've done some great stuff. I think in my time, but there's stuff that I've seen them do that's just outstanding. And that's where you find th- these guys will do seminars like that. And a couple of years ago, I worked with uh, ICCFA, and they have little colleges that are continuing education groups. But we did an embalming college and brought in some cadavers and some of these top guys to really hands-on. How do you reconstruct half of a face? You know, r- really good ways of, of doing makeup and airbrushing and all those kinds of things that – when you're doing mostly older folks, I don't need to airbrush everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get one of those really, really terrible things that you want some real professional to do. Those guys are out there, and I could call them and fly them in and have them do something that would be really, really astronomical. But it's not common. What's What's the hardest situation for you to deal with? Mm. In the embalming process or in general? Just, I guess, in general. Just in general. I really... I get frustrated more than anything at the families that bicker and fight nowadays. It's, it seems like everybody has an issue going on, and we become like the arbitrator of mean comments across the table, and that wears on me real fast. And mm. the other thing is you you just you got to have an outlet. You, you can't constantly be around somber, crying, really upset people um, and not have a way to deal with it. I've... I've been doing all right. The frustrating thing is the bickering. That's why you became a district deputy and council. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, ma'am. I'll have another. (laughs) What about? They're not like bickering families at all. What are you talking about? They're more like the dead. Yeah. (laughs) What are the toughest situations with a body that you that you deal with? The reconstruction piece. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you pour your heart and soul in trying to make someone look presentable. And, and even sometimes people don't like to say it, but good, mm-hmm. you know. And I've, I've been known to stand there for hours upon hours upon hours just laboring over something. That wears on you. 
Thankfully, I don't do that every day. If, if every case needed that kind of work, I, I couldn't do that job. And I think that's why the guys who got good at it, they weren't running funeral homes at the same time. They were, you know, doing that in different places and really honing their reconstruction skills. But, you know, the, the average person takes, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes of some reconstruction. I mean, everybody's lost weight or, or they've been filled up with a lot of fluid. I mean, if you want to make a body look good, that extra time just to make sure the details are right go a whole long way rather, you know, post-embalming. Uh, really makes a difference. And people don't know that that's behind the scenes. You know, they think embalming it's when you dress them, but, you know, an hour of filling out the lips with the little liquid we inject that turns to gel and holds its figure and, you know, making sure the eyes have a little bit of a roundness and not pasted down. But, uh, you know, the stuff that you think is pretty standard but isn't happening everywhere. Do you work really from photos key. that family a lot of times, or whatever? Yeah, people give us a photo. You know, somebody will bring in the picture from, like, 1947 <laughs> to put in the obituary, but recent stuff, even if it's not, you know, obituary worthy, we'll try to get a picture. Uh-huh. But where I'm at, a lot of times I've known the folks, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I, that's when I, when I was saying the difficult ones, I was, I thought maybe you might say someone I know. I'm not at that point yet. Okay. A lot of funeral director friends, older, nearing retirement, start to play the, you know what, I'm, I'm done. I'm burying all my friends. Uh-huh. You know, I've buried folks my age, people I've known, but it hasn't hit to the point where I'm starting to bury everybody that I grew up with. Uh, (laughs) And maybe that'll change as I get older. What about young people? Do you struggle with that at all? I I don't. To me, that would be tough to. You know what? I think funeral directors and embalmers who have kids, Mm -hmm. that hits them a little harder. I don't have any children. So I guess it's a little different when when you've had to hold your child. Mm -hmm. Um, But. I also think being a good embalmer is like being a good heart surgeon. Mm-hmm. You know, if you thought of everybody on the table that you're cutting open. That's true. Is your own mother or your own father or your own right. grandparent, you know, you're going to go insane. Right. Uh, you know, at some point, this is another person that you're taking care of, and you got to take away a little of that personal connection. I mean, I've embalmed folks that are family and very close, and I think that's – if I'm good at it and I can do it, you get your mind wrapped around it right and do your best job and move on. I have two more requests for my Viking funeral. <laughs> I want hair like Josh, and I want one of those Cindy Crawford bowls. Thank you. <laughs> the moles are a new problem, but I, maybe we'd get a wig made now so that... <sighs> I think there's a stink bug we can fix. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take another break. We'll come back and uh, wrap, wrap up. up our episode. Hello, I'm Austin Schifrin, and welcome to Bone and Marrow, a short segment of Masonic Learning. This segment is entitled, 24 Precious Hours. We have a lecture and a symbol in Freemasonry where we talk about time management. It isn't particularly important which degree this is attached to, nor what the symbol is, because I feel like this is one of those subjects pertinent enough to handling modern life that it should be discussed as broadly as possible. For the last 20 or so years, I have only ever held what are considered 9 to 5 jobs, I've been a guy working on a computer at a desk in a cubicle. The sort of arrangement you might see in, say, Dilbert. In some of these jobs, the workday has been very predictable and I could comfortably anticipate when I'd be wrapping up in the afternoon. In other, more high-pressure roles, it seemed like unpredictable ad hoc work was always coming up, and I sometimes got home at 7 or 8 o'clock at night instead. I still count myself fortunate in comparison to the grueling schedules that some people around the world somehow juggle. I was once a more consistent practitioner of my own religious devotions, 
At one stage in life, I went to services on the weekends probably three out of four weekends per month, and may have been called away one weekend per month by family gatherings or charitable activities that I could at least rationalize to myself justified my absence from that house of worship. Then, sadly, that proportion inverted itself, and I missed services more often than I attended. I'm still wrestling with my conscience on this note. The time that I devote to the necessities of sleep and nourishment is catch-as-catch-can for the most part. Realistically, I probably get around six hours of sleep a night. I sometimes have a half hour for breakfast, or it's eaten on the run. Lunchtime has become very unpredictable. Typically, the most leisurely meal, if that term applies at all, is dinner, whether my girlfriend and I have prepared it together, or we decide to splurge and either order in or dine out. This is often the only meal that has its own boundaries and isn't consumed on the fly. I share all of these observations because I suspect many of you can relate. Modern life feels so challenging to navigate. But just because it's challenging, we shouldn't throw up our hands and relent. That clever quote that you saw from Venus and Serena's dad in King Richard actually originates with brother Ben Franklin. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. In the midst of the cool and exciting lessons of Freemasonry, its handshakes, symbols, passwords, and rituals, let's pause and appreciate one so simple and humble it may sometimes get scoffed at or altogether overlooked. Imagine the transformation it might make in your own life and how it might empower you to impact on the lives of others if you could give the mindfulness to each of these activities that they deserve. Your attendance upon the deity and the relief of brethren in need, your chosen career, and your rest and refreshment. Brothers, please take care of yourselves, the better that we might be enabled to take care of each other and the world. I hope you enjoyed this segment, and for more Masonic insights and learning, please look out for my book, More Light, Collected Masonic Writings 2017-2021, to now available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and as an Apple ebook. Thanks, and take care. back. Uh, before we get to our closing, uh, Nathan, I want to thank you for being with us tonight. If someone wanted more information about our topic tonight, where might they go? Sure. They can go to my website, www.minichfuneral.com, M-I-N-N-I-C-H, funeral.com. My email's on there. It's easy. It's just nate at minichfuneral.com. I'd be happy to send papers that I've written or anything else that might lead them in a direction of more discussion. Some of those resources are even on there. You can just click on the PDF. <laughs> That's great. All right. So uh, what do we got coming up uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks? Pete, how about you? I have uh, the big reunion at the Valley of Reading. Uh, that should be a good time. Um, I think I, ha I have all my lines memorized as long as I have a few well-placed prompts on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, no, I, th I think it's pretty good. And, yeah, I think that's it for me. Uh, Josh? I don't think I have too much going on. You've uh, got something coming up this weekend. Oh, yeah. Chicken barbecue. Chicken barbecue. And? And Reno's funeral. And you have a past master's. No, that got moved, that we 15th. think. Oh, it got moved. Well, so the secretary, the, the master sent out an email saying it's this weekend, and the secretary sent out an email saying that it's next month. Can we not talk about that? So I'm assuming <laughs> I should follow what the secretary says. 
I'll not comment. Okay. <laughs> Tim, what do you have going on? Uh, so, again, in the big valley of uh, Harrisburg, we have the reunion coming up on the 20th and 21st. Um, and then the event for Sunday, which is traditionally our ladies' entertainment uh, event, uh, we're actually having a Steely Dan tribute band come, uh, which actually I love Steely Dan, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, that's on Sunday. Um, and I'm not sure of the timing of it, but that's also the day for our next meeting of Uber Grotto. So get that coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks. How about you, Scott? Uh, be with Pete for the Valley, the Valley of Reading reunion. Do you have your uh, you have your line memorized yet? I got I have like a whole oath I have to do. Ugh. All right. So, uh, can I do a shameless plug? Sure. So. Speaking of the Valley Riding, there's a motorcycle club up there called the Hiram Scottish Riders. They are doing a 49-state ride for charity, and it's going to be from June 9th to July 10th. They're riding 49 states, so let's wrap our heads around that. That's 29 days. It takes you four days to get from Washington to Alaska and back. So that leaves you with 25 days to do 48 states. Led wow. led by Vic Frederick, who I believe is going to be really, really, really on the upward hill side of eighty by the time he gets there. Um, they're looking. For, so the right blinker is going to be on the whole entire time. <laughs> Go around. Uh, so they're looking for sponsorship for this. Um, I will give this sponsorship form to Pete to put on your show notes. Yep. Yep. Uh, another thing that's coming up is. Uh, with the Widow's Sons, we have a member who was injured on his way to work. Long story. Don't want to put anybody really under the carpet, but they're doing a beef and beer for him. Uh, it's June 11th at the American Legion Post 602, which is in Spring City. Uh, $25 in advance, $30 to the door. I'll put my information if you guys want to reach out to me. Um, basically, the brother had a traumatic brain injury and... For lack of better ways of saying this, he's like 51st dates of the movie. Every morning he wakes up with total amnesia and doesn't know what's going on. Um, so we're just trying to help him out and do the right thing. Um, How about your blue tickets? They're not to be on the air, but oh, I'll show okay. you. Okay. They're, yeah. Okay. Um, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Delilah's. What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, other than that, Grotto, Grotto, Grotto. Um, and I really, really, truly appreciate you guys inviting me to come out to play. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you for your sponsorship of the show as well. Our newest advertiser, SJ Home Electric, LLC. Look for a, uh, commercial in our near future. Coming soon. Once we write it and let Larry, 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 is it okay if Larry does the voiceover for your commercial? (laughs) I'd rather, Scott Helm. I'd rather Beetlejuice from the Stern (laughs) Show. (laughs) (laughs) Can we make that happen? Um, I think if I go on, what's that cameo? There's, there's, yeah. a, there, I, I, there's some of these guys I can get for like 10, 12 bucks. So nice. like crackhead Bob, maybe, or I think he's dead. High, High pitch, Eric. No, yeah. no, 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 I like him. Okay. All right. Nate, what do you have Masonically coming up? <laughs> I don't need to plug the Valley of Harrisburg since whoa, whoa, he did whoa, whoa, that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't say it that way. The big Valley. Oh, the big Valley. The, the, grand, valley, the right? grand Valley. We're the big Valley whoa. or the Grand Valley of Harrisburg. <clears throat> need to learn to walk, son. <laughs> <laughs> That's happening. <laughs> Saturday, I get to do uh, uh, the first meeting as uh, presiding officer of my AMD council, Rex. 
So oh, nice. That's come up on Saturday, and then because it was my lodge. Then, because uh, it was moved on next Tuesday, I get the honor to confer the third degree on my nephew. Awesome. So, That's cool. Yeah. Very cool. And um, what's going on in the world of, of Council of Royal and Select Master Masons in Pennsylvania? What? A lot of visits in May and June because I get to accompany our new uh, most poisoned grandmaster, Rick Fessler, which you guys know. Can you spe- spell poison? <laughs> and what does it mean? <laughs> Powerful. <laughs> Um, Powerful. So it's a French term. So your district in that, how, how big is your district? How? I have five councils, but, you know, I live here. Uh, Harrisburg is here, my home council, and all the other ones are way down under their fingers, like Hanover, Shippensburg, Chambersburg. So I get to drive quite a bit when I go to visit councils, but I've enjoyed it a lot. And I'm good friends with Rick Fessler, and I'm very happy that he's continuing in this job. I think he'll be a great uh, grandmaster for the council. and. Looking forward to the year with him, but Another we're visiting member. them all in here in May and June, so we're in my district, so we'll get around a lot. Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, Josh, I think we can cue the chickens, but we don't have a Larry. Maybe Larry will mail it in. Maybe Larry will mail it in. Otherwise, we'll just kind of sign off with the chickens. So uh, I think we have an inappropriate joke. Oh, i got a joke to tell you. <laughs> Priest and a rabbi walked into a bar. Bartender says, he already told joke. that one. Why does a funeral director put a white shirt on a man? Oh, well, here we go. Because he can't put it on himself. Duh. <laughs> well, I'll channel Larry a couple of these. Special thanks to Effort Lodge number 665 for making our great studio available. Special thanks to our contributors of Dutchy Doug. Michelle Snyder, and who is our new one? Austin Sheffrin, who I believe you heard from earlier tonight for the first time. Thank you for that. Our new advertiser, SJ Helm Electric. Our patrons on Patreon that we mentioned earlier. Uh, Jim Stevens. Uh, who else? Michelle. Oh, we have a few guys. A few of our patrons are going to be hosting future shows. Guest hosts. I've heard from three or four of them, so... Uh, yeah. Looking forward to that. Sit near your phone. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks. Yellow. Yellow.